0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: So hello, everyone. I am Sarah, your host for this episode of the New Books Network podcast. We are here with Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison to discuss their work, Objectivity, originally published in 2007 with the 2008 paperback edition distributed by the MIT Press. This work traces the historical and cultural developments of the word objective as it acquired different meanings and associated practices. Similarly, they consider the changing relationship of objectivity as it relates to the subjectivity of the researcher or the scientific self. This deep philosophical work, diving into the cultural and historical shifts of epistemology within the past few centuries, is told through atlas making and image generation. Unfortunately, with an audio podcast, we can't share these beautiful images with you, but I assure you that they are just as lovely as the philosophical narrative. And sort of like as a personal aside, um, this is the first philosophy book I've read um, to completion since um, my undergrad degree. Um, So it just reminded me of how much fun um, engaging with these sort of concepts can be, especially when they're paired with images like pulled through such um, interesting scientific personalities. So with that, welcome, Lorraine and Peter.
2: Pleasure to be with you. Yes. Thanks so much, Sarah, for the invitation.
1: Yeah. So I annotated the heck out of this book and I have so many questions and I'm looking forward to seeing where this discussion goes. But maybe we could start off with um, both of you briefly introducing yourselves, um, how you started working together and sort of share how you decided to tackle this really big history of objectivity.
2: Peter, you want to start?
3: <laughs> uh, well, I'm Peter Gallison. I'm a professor at, at Harvard University where I work in a sort of trio of fields between history of science, physics, and filmmaking.
2: And I'm Lorraine Destin. Everybody calls me Rainey. Um, I'm um, a historian of science based in Berlin um, at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science and also in, at the University of Chicago.
1: Nice, so sort of how did you um, sort of come to work together and yeah, again, just like tackle this and like notice that there was like a lack of history about the word or about the, even the concept of objectivity?
3: Randy, you wanna start? Sure, um,
2: so, so in a sense, we started working together when we were in graduate school. Um, I, I remember, um, A session of the History of Science Society, which we organized with another friend, Catherine Park. But the idea for this book came when we both had the good fortune to be together at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford one year. Um, And um, we we were both interested, I think, for a long time in um, a kind of radical historicization of what makes science tick. We were were interested in not taking for granted any of the assumptions that science as we now know it had always been science as we knew it in the past. And we are coming from very different backgrounds. Um, Peter is a historian of um, modern science, especially of physics. I'm a historian of early modern science. I had been working on probability and statistics at the time. Um, Peter had been working on particle physics at the time and the history of experiment, but it was a fortunate conjunction that we were together that year and we started working on an article um, about a certain kind of objectivity, which became the centerpiece for the book. But at the time we thought was a self-enclosed story, which was mechanical objectivity.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, just to add a little bit to, to to that, Rainey had been interested for some time in objectivity across a broad swath of different contexts. And I'd had a very particular problem that I was concerned about, which is that in the particle physicists had these things called atlases of cloud chamber pictures, atlases of bubble chamber pictures, atlases of nuclear emulsions, which are just strips of, of film that they let particles skitter across the surface of, and then develop them to see their tracks. And at the beginning of these books, they one of them said, we learned about this from the medics, from the doctors. And I was really surprised because in general, physicists don't admit that they learn anything from anybody else outside of their field. And here was something far away from their field. So one day when we, during this year that Rain and I were at, at, uh, at Stanford, uh, I went down to the basement library of the medical school, basement of the library at the medical school, and I started looking around for atlases, and there are thousands of them, and they had all of this great material about what ob- what an objective image was, so I was very excited, and I, I brought a bunch of these back to the Center for Advanced Studies where we were, were working, and I said, Rainey, you know, you're interested in objectivity, this is, you know, the, the particle physicists actually turn out to be tapping into this vein of books that are not written for the public, they're written for other doctors. Uh, how to you know, make objective images of the eye and objective images of the skull and X-ray images and all these things. So we, we, we thought it'd be really fun to explore this. And I mean, that, it took many, many years for us to finish that book. We worked on it for um, a decade and a half but it, um, on and off, and it took, we had some, many things that we had to figure out along the way, but it was, that was the beginning, and we, you know, it's been, it was incredibly fun working on it together.
1: I can totally imagine, like, these, the images that you have in the book, they're, like, beautiful, and so strange, and so particular. Um, I think it's interesting, though, I I definitely, the, your, your statement about physicists admitting that they learned something from other people, that's really funny, Um, but sometimes I, like, with the science background, I feel like it's almost hard to sort of transcend or go beyond like barriers of discipline. I think that's something that you maybe even hit on in this book too, about like how within the different types of objectivity, there's like different types of science that sort of happen in the different categories.
2: Yeah, that was something that interested us a lot. And um, as Peter said, it surprised us as well, in part because there is this hierarchy of the sciences at least in the minds of the physicists who consider themselves to be the pinnacle of this hierarchy of the sciences but also historians of science um, also tacitly at least at that time observed disciplinary boundaries of the contemporary sciences so even though people who worked on the 16th and 17th century and earlier periods knew that the classification of disciplines that we now have um, was a product of a fairly modern university system of the late 19th century, we tend to take them for granted. So people would identify themselves as historians of physics, historians of mathematics, historians of biology. Um, And what this book forced us to do was to think about developments in science which were transdisciplinary, um, which were happening, um, and this really did astonish, they were happening in crystallography, they were happening in anatomy, Um, they were happening in physics, they were happening um, in botany. So it it really made us rethink not just the question about objectivity as an eternal scientific virtue, but also about the way in which our own discipline had become sort of balkanized mm-hmm. in a mirror image of the balkanized modern research university.
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, in a way we traded... Um, a length of time. i mean, really looking at this very long period from the early scientific atlases of the 18th century through to contemporary science. So we extended the reach of what a usual study would be. I mean, historians tend to be focused on a century or a part of a century or a decade. Uh, And here we are looking at, at several hundred years And then, but we decided to not not be looking at objectivity and statistics and objectivity and journalism and objectivity and many other areas, although we were interested in those things, but to focus really on these atlases. And there were individual publishers like springer verlag that had series of atlases. And it became, there were not, that wasn't the only press, but there were a couple of presses that produced large numbers of atlases across many different domains. And that was very interesting because there came to be a kind of genre. It was a recognizable, um, it was a recognizable species of literature that was in in part answered our original question, which is what are the what are these strange atlases of cloud chamber pictures? I mean, we think of atlases nowadays mainly as as geographical guides, but um, these were, these were something else. These were picking out the working objects of mm-hmm. a particular domain. What are the standard forms of clouds? What are the standard forms of a particular kind of plant or of the human skull or the hand or a particular instrument, you know, a ophthalmoscope? And what are the kinds of things that you can learn laying out the basic features of the images produced by that instrument? So I think that that we traded length of time for a narrowing of focus, but then they became commensurate, and you could compare and you could see that there were real patterns to the way these images were produced and what they meant and who was assumed to be making the images and using the images.
1: yeah, mm-hmm. I guess before we jump into the um sort of like the concepts and the patterns that you saw, um I remember or and part of it with like the different atlases. It's almost like when you are making it like a new atlas you sort of have to or or, like the authors would have to like justify its existence like in the pre and like the preface of the of the atlas so I'm like wondering if that helped you sort of track those like paradigm shifts and like those shifts in the epistemic virtues that you've noticed or like how like how self-aware were these atlas makers of like what they were doing like on that like historical trajectory of the term objectivity
2: Yeah, I I, I mean, I don't, I I wouldn't um, ascribe to them an awareness of the entire arc, Mm -hmm. but one has to understand the purpose of those prefaces. Every atlas starts out by assuming that it will be the last word in its discipline. It will be the definitive atlas to end all atlases Um, for two reasons, one of which Peter has already elaborated, which is, you're training the eyes of an entire discipline. That training is not only um, intensive in terms of time invested. Once people have learned to see in a certain way, it's extremely difficult to unlearn that and learn a new way of seeing. So you have to offer um, an apology to your entire discipline for why you are starting all over again. and epistemic virtues turned out to be ammunition in that fight, um, and therefore these atlases, I don't think that was the original reason, but Peter will correct me if he remembers otherwise, I don't think our original reason for um, using the atlases as our centerpiece was that they would be flags of a new urgency about epistemic virtues, but in fact, it turned out that way. I don't think we realized it first um, the enormous investment, including monetary investment, but also investment in time and professional credit, that went into making each of these atlases. You
3: know, one thing that I think you you, met, you alluded to, Sarah, at the beginning of our, of, of this um, event is that we came to understand over time that every form or argument of object for our, for objectivity presupposed some notion of subjectivity that they actually traveled in pairs. And in order to achieve one kind of objectivity, you had to distinguish it, suppress it, or bar it off from a certain form of subjectivity, like left or right or up or down. There are certain concepts that are only meaningful in contradistinction. And when we began to see that, which was after, I mean, in, in its full form, after our, our, our first article, um, It 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 gave us a new approach, and so we began to say, "What kind of person do you need to be able to make an image that we called mechanically objective? That is to say, that was in some way a kind of transfer of nature to the page with a minimum of intervention." Well, the the right kind of person is a supreme, supremely capable at self-suppression, at self-abnegation, of denying their inclination to see the confirmation of a theory or to leap to the recognition of a pattern or to, you know, whatever it was, instead somebody who was so self-restrained that they could allow nature to pass to the page in an almost protocol driven way, whether it's tracing or uh, later Mm -hmm. photography or uh, many other techniques that were aimed to be able to bypass the, the artist, observer, scientist.
2: Yeah, because we um, now take that kind of suppression of self for granted when we speak about objectivity. It's perhaps hard to recreate how both radical and repulsive it was in the middle decades of the nineteenth century when it was first militantly introduced. Um, some scientists, like the German embryologist and naturalist Ernst Haeckel had nothing but scorn for the idea that you would try to eliminate um, all of the scientific authority, the the cultivated judgment, um, the skills of perception and discernment of a lifetime in order to turn yourself, as he said, into a passive photographic plate. So um, that was also in many ways very useful for us because a lot of the dynamic of the book is about collisions of objectivity with other alternative epistemic virtues, like truth to nature and trained judgment. Um, And without those collisions, without those moments of indignation, disdain, and defensiveness, it would have been extremely difficult for us to show um, that objectivity is not alone on the stage of possible epistemic virtues. So there's nothing self-evident about the self-abnegation Peter has just described as a cardinal scientific virtue.
3: One way to 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 see this is to try to when we try to do this in the book we, is to is to explain why the earlier form of right representation, the truth to nature aspirations, that roughly speaking gets its foothold in the 18th century was so plausible, it, you know, it's not just some stupid error that they made. They're people like Goethe, you know, they're, they're, they're the crowning rulers of science in, in many ways. And if you asked Goethe, you know, why don't you just draw the particular clover outside your window, you know, that would seem ridiculous. I mean, the caterpillar had eaten one of the leaves and, the, and some of it was burnt by the sun and you know, he had stepped on it by mistake when he was walking out the door. I mean, why would you take a particular clover when you could draw the thing that represented clover, the the flants, as he called it, the originary, the originary plant? And so, and the same was true for many of the things that he studied, and then many others at this period studied. Whether clouds, there are a million kinds of clouds, there are an infinite number of clouds, and every cloud you look at is changing while you watch it. So it was an act of supreme innovation to be able for Goethe and others at that time to be able to say, look, the clouds can be classified and we can get their basic structure, you know, we can distinguish between a cumulus and, a, and, and other forms of clouds. And, and that, that then gives us a, a foothold, a beginning of a, an ability to talk about the weather or, or, or botany. So for them, it was completely self-evident. That you would have the right kind of person, preferably a, a someone super gifted, a genius or a sage, who could part the curtains of experience and see the forms that lay behind any individual, whereas in the middle of the middle of the nineteenth century, as Randy mentioned a moment ago, that became anathema. We don't want to hear from you what you think it should look like. Just draw the skull that's in case twelve of the museum, you know I mean, and then and then you'll have something to show us. But this was a radical shift from a kind of sage showing you the reality behind appearances to somebody who said, this is the appearance. This is the particular.
2: And some scientists never made the transition. So the botanist, for example, to continue with Peter's example of the Urflanze, um, the botanist experimented for a while with not only photography, but with something which was called the natura abduk. So it's a kind of, you press a leaf, for example, um, with enormous pressure onto a very soft or copper plate to leave an imprint. And they abandoned it. They said, this is useless for us. What we really want are um, types of plants, even um, not just for the species, but also for the, the, the genus. And if you look at um, a a flora these days, it's really rare to find photographs or any other attempt at mechanical objectivity. It's still drawings and often line drawings without color um, to capture um, the type, even though nobody believes anymore in any metaphysical sense in the types.
1: Yeah, I feel like one of the questions I remember having was like sort of what sort of characteristics of like the truth to nature sort of like made up for like the limitations of any of mechanical objectivity. But it sounds like there that like it's in many cases it is more important to be able to have that um ability to recognize like the different types or the archetype or things like that. But it just also makes you wonder how given like buttressing up against um mechanical objectivity or later on you describe train judgment, how or what or how, like this truth to nature can still like um perpetuate, or like how can they how can scientists who choose truth to nature now how can they choose like what's relevant in like their atlas making or in their studies?
3: It's a good question. You know, I think that you know, the metaphor that was often guiding mm-hmm. for us was like geographical strata. So you had a layer of of the truth to nature which wasn't suddenly displaced by mechanical objectivity, it persists. But now starting at a certain time, mid 1830s to 1850s, you start to have another layer on top of it and of mechanical objectivity. And then later in the 20th century, in the 1920s and forward, you start to see people say, no, no, don't, don't draw exactly the thing that comes out of the machine. It's got all sorts of errors in it from the Telescope, or the magnetometer, or whatever it is, and and you know, use your judgment and your experience, and you know, you, if you know it's an artifact, you know, don't do the surgery. Don't don't, you know, the first MRIs put these really bizarre things in, in the images of people's backs, and they did needless surgery. So it's a it, you 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 need a judgment. So what we thought of is that as these new layers are added they compress the old ones, they transform them. So when somebody does a, what we would call a kind of truth to nature image in bird atlases or in, as Rainey says, in the botanical area, they no longer think of them as a kind of truth behind, or maybe not the same way, as a kind of higher level of truth. But they they think that it's, for instance, they might say, this is useful in distinguishing between a red tip blackbird and another kind of black, I mean, it's making something salient so that you can distinguish or pick out birds or plants is a pragmatic device. So it's no longer maybe as metaphysical as it was, but it's still idealized, but it's idealized for a different purpose. So So that's how I would, I mean, I think we tend to think about the answer to your question that it's, it's not that people are a replication of Goethe that the idealization of Goethe is now trans trans, is morphed into something new, Uh, but it's still idealization, but with a different aim.
2: Yeah. And it sometimes gets framed even in quantitative language. So those people who are dealing with data have an entire language of the outlier. So Mm -hmm. the outlier, not being the extreme of a distribution, but really someone, something way off in left field. And, um, there's always a question of whether or not when you are reporting your results, um, you include a data point which you think is probably almost certainly an artifact because you have no possible way of understanding the mechanism by which it could have been produced or whether assuming um, the mantle of of mechanical objectivity, you say, we're going to take everything. We're going to include everything um, in our our least squares analysis or not. So that's another way in which, A much more modern language, so era analysis of this kind gets developed in the late 18th and throughout the 19th century, is then folded back upon what is essentially the same kind of truth to nature judgment.
1: So would you say that it the sort of trained judgment that comes from this sort of combination of um, the truth to nature sort of abstracting the particular or extracting from the particulars this like idealized concept in accordance with or in conjunction with like the mechanical objectivity nature of like using a tool or a technology to represent the thing exactly um and i'm not sure where i'm going with this question is that sort of like sort of like that process
3: well I, I think maybe one way of construing your question might be that so we have this truth to nature where somebody like Goethe picks out the right typological classification of clouds or plants. Then we have mechanical objectivity where the goal is to replicate individuals on the page as closely as possible to the individuality or particularity of a, of a particular thing, cloud or plant or skull. And then trained judgment, you might ask, is that just a return to Goethe because judgment is being used? And we, we argue that that's not the case, that nobody, Goethe would never, or say if you want to be like me just train up and you'll be able to pick out the fundamental or types of nature um you can't i mean this being a sage of this kind or Cheseldon or albinus the great anatomist artist um it was something else it was a special insight a special vision that they had whereas trained judgment really is trained i mean the goal and we we have the textbooks to to support that, that, you know, say, look, if you want to distinguish, you know, the trace of a grand mall from a petit mal seizure, here's how we can train you to do that. We may not be able to make a machine to do it, but in two weeks or four weeks, we'll, we'll get it so that you too can make it in a replicable way. It's objective in that sense. It's not the, the three of us could, could learn how to make these distinct distinctions among those traces or plants or whatever it was. And so training is is a way of saying even if we even if it's not a machine codable protocol it's still something that can be shared and learned and you know it, it's an acquired skill and that skill will allow you to distinguish between artifacts of the machine or the environment and something real and and therefore give you put you in a position to make the image proper and not tied to the vicissitudes of some machine which malfunctions when you know a rabbit jumps on the doorstep or something.
2: I mean, one example of trained judgment in action right now is um, the citizen science website Zooniverse. Mm. Um, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but one of its activities is um, for people without any astronomical training whatsoever to classify galaxies because the astronomers are just drowning in data because of all that's sent in by Hubble, um, the the space telescope. And it's exactly as Peter describes it. Um, Anyone, even me, um, can train to classify these galaxies um, relatively quickly in ways which are reliable enough to be useful to the astronomers. Um, and no one is under any illusions that we possess even um, a knowledge of how galaxies are formed, much less um, the deep insights of a Goethe or a Linnaeus.
1: Yeah, I remember that you had uh, one of like the stories that you shared was about like Annie Canon who ended up like co-authoring an atlas like cataloging star spectra and how like even though she didn't have like astrological um, background that she was still able to like rearrange how the spectra, um, like rearrange how the spectra could be presented in the atlas because just like just by going through it herself. Um,
2: but I I feel I like any cannon actually did know more about the spectra, how they were produced. Um, yeah how the <laughs> were produced.
3: Mm-hmm. But she but it's true. She was she she trained a generation to be able to classify these spectra. And that classification was foundational for modern astronomy for the sequencing of stars for understanding what was going on in the visible universe.
1: And it sounds too like with this sort of more trained judgment, I really like what you said about or mentioned about like citizen science. Um, I, I, I love Zooniverse, it's like, I, I always tell people to do it in their free time or have teachers use it for classrooms. I think it's like a really useful way to incorporate more people into like the practice of science. Um, but like, you know, beyond, beyond that, beyond citizen science, like having this sort of like trained judgment seems to shift the scientific persona away from this conscious inward struggle that's like willfully willlessness. Um, So how does that sort of like, um, or how did that like transition happen from like being so anti-subjectivity to like sort of incorporating that into like having that be a positive thing from like the mechanical objectivity sense?
3: I think that people began to be frustrated with a purely mechanical approach and they realized that they could there are all sorts of things you could do. I mean, your example of any fake was is a, is a good one that if you tried to make a protocol driven way of sorting out spectra, you ended up with nonsense or electroencephalograms or many other things or ma- ma- magnetic images of the sun. And in order to be able to advance and to understand these images, people needed to use their judgment. And so... I think that recognition felt the mechanical objectivity began to feel too constrained. And the idea of trained experts became, was disentangled from this older idea that like, I have a unique vision of what this look, should look like. It was instead saying, I trained to do this. I could train you to do this and we could get the same answer. It is replicable. It's objective in that sense, but we don't know how to make it into a machine process.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting
2: now from um, the standpoint of machine learning to think about how an aspect of the self was allowed to re-enter this process, as it were, through the back door, because no one was under any illusions that you could introspect and understand how you did what you did. Um, So it was an, uh, an open door to the unconscious, but also... A trust in the unconscious as long as the training had been long and and rigorous enough that indeed created not just a different kind of scientific self which is opaque to itself just as machine learning is opaque even to the programmers um, but also it created um, a much more collegial um, relationship between scientists and their artists so um, the, the relationship between scientists and their artists in the truth-to-nature schema um, was very hierarchical. Um, and that really changed. We were quite surprised to see in our 20th century sources how much respect and genuine collaboration there was um, between the scientists and the artists that they work with.
3: Just one moment that I loved in that, as an example of that, where one of this surgeons, who was making an atlas, said, I could have asked this artist, whose name was Daisy Stilwell, I could have asked Daisy Stilwell to simply draw as if she were a photographic camera, but that would be ridiculous. Why wouldn't we use her trained judgment? She knows what's important and how to bring out the salient features of the procedure in the image that she drew. So that's a kind of statement that you just wouldn't have seen. And rainy Rainey is a among many things an expert on the 18th century and when she found these amazing sources of i mean it's very hard to find these detailed connections between particular artists and particular uh, natural philosophers uh, it was never that i defer to the good judgment of the artist i'm working with it was you know Telling this, telling the person to do it again because it wasn't conforming to their theory of how this bug should look. This
2: is particularly hilarious because sometimes um, the naturalist in question would try to draw himself one of these insects or flowers. He said, "This person, this person could not pass a kindergarten art class." <laughs> um, and he was trying to pontificate to his very talented very experienced artist how it should be done.
1: Yeah I like the parallels that you had like throughout like the different epistemic virtues of like having like the four-eyed sight where you have like the um philosopher telling the artist what it should look like or the was it like the blind sight of mechanical objectivity where you're like you're trying to like not have anyone see it other than just like the camera seeing it and uh, what was the term that you used for the um trained judgment like physiognomic site? Um, where like you have the capacity for like the maker and the user like synthesizing and understanding like the relationship sort of like more um in a combined way. So it just makes you wonder, like, um sort of like the role of kind of like the role of aesthetics in like making and making an image and sort of like the roles between like scientific self, artist self, human self um, in like knowledge curation?
3: It's like a yeah, huge a way, question, but. <laughs> no, no, it's a very good question. I think that, you know, we, we would have the same view about aesthetics that we do about the arguments for right representation, which is that it has to be, it, it's historicized. Like we, mm-hmm. what we consider to be aesthetic, I mean, the art historians, you know, this is their bread and butter, but. know taking a page from their book so to speak, you know, the aesthetics, the 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 formal constraints and ambitions and of of these different periods are different. I mean so in a way we see the aesthetics as riding with this historically evolving idea of right representation in science. I mean the
2: yeah yeah I mean it's worth remembering that um, the root of aesthetics is the etymological root is just sensory perception, so same root is anesthesiology, you know, to knock out all, all all senses. And I think if there was a lesson that we learned from this book, it's the profoundly visual and therefore profoundly aesthetic nature of all of these attempts to um, realize an epistemic virtue, whichever one it was, in the form of an image. That there was, there was no escape. Once, once you've chosen to use images, there was no escape from um, some form of aesthetic convention, um, and to some extent, aesthetic valuation.
1: Yeah, I think that sort of hits home for me. Um... I, like i remember like getting stuck on doing experiments or like having to try and like figure out what like the model or the mechanism of some like biological process is they just sort of getting stuck and then like literally turning to drawing things out right mm-hmm. even though it's like data and not like a picture or a tree but just like turning to images as like a way mm-hmm. of trying to modeling what's happening even yeah. if like there's no real picture
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, there is a there there are many other histories that you could do of different forms of scientific imaging. You know, we have images. I mean, we didn't say anything about bar graphs and pie charts and I mean there, you know, there are many ways of, you know, flow diagrams and, you know, schematics of, of various sorts that you you could do an interesting history of those too. I mean, how data how data is visualized and in a broader sense and not treat it as something that is. Transhistorical, but rather is something that has a specific history too.
2: Yeah, you know, there's a wonderful book by Edward Tufts on beautiful data, which is um, a history of the extraordinarily long time it took for people to be able to understand such graphical representations um, of data.
1: Sort of like given that, I was surprised, like one of the sections that you have is about like structural objectivity, which seems to try and describe um, concepts sort of without any Um, any like images of like any sort and just by like relationships. Um, I guess what was sort of like the, what's like sort of the thinking or what was the thinking of like structural objectivists in trying to like abandon the image and sort of,
3: yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to a broader history of iconoclasm and iconophilia in, in, in a much broader cultural sense. I mean, there is there's always been a kind of back and forth between images as a guide or stepping stone, for instance, in religious faith. And iconoclasm, you know, the view that these aren't stepping stones, they're deceptions. And that battle, which goes back and forth many times, certainly from the time of Luther forward, uh, is, is, is really fundamental. And we see that in the sciences. And one of the places, I mean, that In that chapter in the book what we're looking at people who began to think that the visualization of nature was actually in itself fundamentally deceptive and that really because we can't i can't tell you i can't communicate to you my experience of red i mean i can point to something and say red and you can say yes red but we never can compare what that what we really experience there whereas if if i say look this red is on the spectrum between this hue over here and that hue over there, um, that is is shareable. And so this relational and ultimately structural, that goes beyond simple relations of A to B or A to B and C, you can have, uh, you, is communicable. And I think in that sense was foundational for this other form of objectivity, which took hold in, in philosophy very strongly and in other places as well, that if we can put things into these shareable structural forms, we can achieve a form of objectivity that images alone can never give us.
2: Yeah, there's a really strong current, both in philosophy, especially those parts of philosophy, which are closest to mathematics and logic and in mathematics in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, that is deeply distrustful of of intuition Um, and what had once been the standard and the guarantor of rigor in mathematics, the intuitions of self-evidence in a Euclidean geometric proof, become to be seen as extremely flimsy um, and no basis for the foundations of mathematics and logic, which in turn was to be the ground floor of all knowledge. And that fuels a great deal, I think, of this iconoclasm, as Peter calls it, in structural objectivity.
3: That's a great example. I mean, if you think, for instance, that what it means to be parallel is a railroad track with two, two rails, and you just, that you fix that in your mind, it can seem to you impossible that parallel lines could ever meet. But when geometers began to say, no, that, let's just simply look at the definition of what it means to be parallel. For instance, if we could draw a line perpendicular to two lines, then they're parallel. Then you could say, take two longitudinal lines, like the sl- slice of orange, and you see they would converge at the North Pole and at the South Pole. So there's an example of a geometry where two parallel lines meet not just once, but twice. So you have to get it out of your head, the mathematician said. Famously, David Hilbert, that you know that if you you just abandon this thing you call intuition, which is based on our everyday experience and generalized into an absolute law, it shouldn't be. What should matter is the logical structure of an argument, and then follow it where it goes. So it seems
1: like social objectivists sort of had this fear of intuition, and I feel like um, like I think at the the end too, you sort of like return to this idea of like. not like fear-driven values, but sort of like responding to problems um, that they saw in um, how either images are made or how um, truth is being represented. Um, so sort of what was like sort of like the response to the structural objectivity in atlas-making, if there was one?
2: It's hard. In a sense, it's a kind of um, contradiction in, in terms because um, mm-hmm. the structural objectivist um, wanted to do away with the whole genre of atlases. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they were they were interested in so far as there was going to be an image. It was going to be the diagram. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine as that is a kind of X-ray version of a uh, bodied out um, image image in the atlases. Um, it was going to be group theory. You know transformations of things which remain constant. Under group theoretical modification, people like Hermann Weyl's views about about relativity. So um, they went in a completely different direction. And in so far, I think as they have um, outposts outside of mathematics and logic to this day, I think it's among philosophers who are extremely wary of what they take to be. Um, a devaluing of scientific progress because of the radical changes which occur um, in the course of scientific development. And they want to argue that there are some structures that are somehow independent of images, independent of concepts, independent of even techniques um, which persist over time despite um, radical theoretical and also empirical ruptures in the sciences. So I, I think structural objectivity has um, more or less sequestered itself from the empirical, at least in its <laughs> current incarnation.
1: But sort of given that, if if one could make an atlas of something of something that is that sort of timeless um, method less. Thing that would be the atlas and all atlases, if like if that is like the foundation, is that sort well,
3: of there. Like there what? is a, there is an atlas. I mean, one example would be the in string theory, uh, this theory that is aims to combine general relativity and quantum physics, um, and to their the solution to the basic problems that they ask is a spe, is a space named after two mathematicians. Kalabi and Yao, Kalabi Yao spaces, there is an atlas of Kalabi Yao spaces. Now, it doesn't have pictures particularly, it's not really about that, but it's a kind of guide and compendium of these spaces that might be useful to people working in string theory. And um, and so that would be an example of a non visual compendium of the working objects of a domain of mathematical physics. Yeah,
2: I mean, it is interesting the way in which images tend to sneak in through the back door. Um, Recently, there was, um, I would call it an atlas. I'm not sure they called it an atlas. Um, In any case, a compendium um, produced by mathematicians who study high dimensional spaces. So things that nobody's visual intuitions could ever grasp. And what they did was to map certain mathematical characteristics of these spaces onto the characteristics of human faces. Think of the way in which, um, you know, old police artists used to work. And they'd say, well, is it this kind of eyebrow and that kind of nose, that kind of mouth? And the, so what they did was to create faces to um, represent these high dimensional spaces so that they could basically um, get the mathematicians to hone their trained judgment, their physiognomic sight, literal physiognomic sight in this case, of the faces. So. Um, I think, as Peter said, there's always a kind of um, oscillation going on between iconophilia and iconoclasm, even in the most abstract of the sciences.
1: Yeah, so I guess that kind of gets at one of the um, things I had towards like the end of the book. You sort of like note that contemporary atlases are maybe a little bit like more like interactive in nature, and geared more towards like like the Production of images rather than like the reproduction of them. So, it's sort of given that. Like, what do you think that sort of means for, like, the future of atlases or the future of objectivity or how people are coming to understand like the world and new things in it?
3: I think you know one of the things we argue in in the book is is that a lot of not all but many of many aspects of contemporary sciences are not just looking to see have I correctly reproduced something which already exists, but making new things. I mean, nanoscience is like that all the time. They're making new kinds of objects. And so the kind of compendium or atlas that they need or that they are making has a much more generative quality. It's like if these are images used to guide construction of things, or even in in mathematical physics, uh, designing new kinds of spaces, putting together, I mean, these are abstract constructions, but they're constructions. And so it's, the, and that I think is, is widespread. Or sometimes it might be something like the NIH atlas, digital atlas of a man and a woman. And those are then available to make particular atlases that are useful by, by individuals or groups that want to study something, you know, to look at the lymph system in certain cross cut or something like that. So the, the, what the NIH and they has done in the, in these digital man and woman is to produce a kind of meta atlas. These are um, you know, slices, so to speak of, of what's going on that are produced digitally. And you can fly through or cut through or, uh, look at different systems or put something in false color to differentiate it from something else. And so it's creating the abstract background or not the abstract, but the higher order background against which you can make your own atlas or your own fly through or follow a vein or, you know, trace the contours of, a, of an organ. And so I think that the, you know, what we were arguing there was that this the idea of a simple reproduction of an already existing nature as being the goal of atlases, has begun to shift as the images are themselves more like documents of production yeah. or guides to production. When a surgeon is doing a, a microsurgery 2,000 miles away, looking at the video screen, uh, she, she, she's not trying to demonstrate the existence of something. She's trying to reattach a nerve in a hand or whatever it is that needs to be done. So I think that that's that's more like the kinds of images that we see in these kind of meta-atlases and atlases of a contemporary digital sort that are becoming more widespread.
2: Yeah, I think also that the um, rise and rise and rise of computer simulations as a new form of scientific empiricism is generating new epistemic virtues, which are all about, as Peter says, about production rather than reproduction. And it's no longer the case that one worries that one's um, depiction of nature is faithful or not. One doesn't even pretend to be depicting nature anymore. (laughs) Um, One is interested rather in what a computer simulation will allow one to do with the world rather than to mirror the world.
3: Or to do a kind of what if simulation. What if you know you had two black holes colliding, and this is under these circumstances, and both of them are spinning, and they're spinning in opposite directions. You want to. It, it's a kind of ex- explore. You know, explore exploration of the space of possible phenomena, or a phenomena isolate. You know, what would happen if you looked at this phenomenon and imagined that there were no magnetic fields; it was only electric. Or what if there was. You know, what if you looked at this. From the perspective of being inside of something that it's not possible to be in, um, what would you see? And I think that that ability to kind of imagine a simplified or alternatives perspective or isolating elements becomes part of the ambition.
1: Yeah, I like that. It almost sounds like you're saying that the uh, method of producing the image is like more integrated with like the image itself, where you're trying to use that tool to figure out what you can do or what you can learn about the world like using that tool that almost sounds like it I remember like going through like the mechanical objectivity section and being like I can't believe like maybe this is also like in a trained judgment framework that we're in now just like being like I can't believe that they trusted these images that like you need weird stains or that you were like literally inventing a camera like how can you trust that camera if you literally just invented it? So it sounds like this sort of like integrating the tool with the process of producing these images sort of like
2: um, answers that critique almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah I think again one has to always keep in mind what Peter said earlier about the way in which each new emergent epistemic virtue modifies the others but mm-hmm. in itself is framed by what went before. So even though it seems to us absolutely ridiculous that people thought that somehow the camera with all of its um, artifacts, the fact that it it doesn't produce color, you have to stand still for five minutes in order to get an image, that all of this somehow was producing um, a mirror image of what there is outside, compared to the effort of drawing it did have a kind of automatism to it. Um, so that, and the computer simulation compared to the camera also seems to be so much more productive, so much more um, creative um, in terms of the counterfactual worlds that it creates, that that's the standard, not an absolute standard as to whether or not um, there has been any agency involved.
3: In producing the image, it's like I a jazz can't... song compared to what? You know, it's always <laughs> it, you're, it's always it's always compared to something. It's not mechanical sub It's mechanical compared to the idealization of truth to nature or judgment compared with the aspirations of mechanical objectivity. It's it's always in. It's a it's a constant dialogue. It's back and forth.
2: Yeah. And guess- sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um I just wanted to say um, because this is often a way in which our book is read, but we didn't mean it to be read this way. We didn't think of this as a succession of one epistemic virtue replacing <laughs> the others. We really thought them of them as accumulating and constantly interacting um with one another, right in the here and now as well as as historically.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. I- I agree in that, that. That makes sense that it's, uh, it's like a process um, as it like the objectivity has evolved and like is growing and becoming new things. It's not like ablating or rejecting the old inherently. But one of the things that I was wondering is like given, given this maybe new way of making atlases or producing images, like would that, how that sort of defines or perhaps redefines the sort of scientific self in like this current epoch of objectivity.
3: Well, I, I think that you know, if you think of the transit, you know, the, the sequence, and as Rainey says it's important important to our argument that this mm-hmm. isn't a kind of out with the old, in with the new. It's rather, things haven't beginning time. Mechanical objectivity is not there from in the eighteenth century. Judgment, judgment, judgmental, or or temp- or um, trained judgment does not a feature of the mid 19th century. So there are new things that happen. The old things persist and are transformed, but it carries on. So it might go from, you could say the sage or somebody making claims to having intrinsic specialized insights because of who they are and what they are. The mechanical objectivity, subjectivity is is one of the self-restraint, restrained person whose, whose virtue consists in their ability to hold back their desire to confirm their favorite theory or whatever other idealization they had. And the, ju- the trained expert is, is this new kind of person in science. The, the, a trained expert is not what you see in the 18th century or in the early 19th century, mid 19th century. I think this new form of person is something uh, hybrid between a, a, a maker and somebody who's trying to understand. So maybe something hybrid between a scientist and an engineer, or a scientist and engineer and someone bringing aesthetic techniques in this broader, deeper, older sense of aesthetic, the different uses of the senses to the, to, to bear.
1: Yeah, I like that integration or the idea of like integrating different, like um, maybe not necessarily personas, but I think that there's like a, or I think traditionally we tend to think of like scientists as different than engineers, but even so that even like loops back in with the original seemingly like the original idea of, where this book came from, like, right, of, like, physicists learning from medical, um, old medical atlases. So it seems, it sounds like what you're saying, um, that the sort of, like, future generation of scientists and atlas makers is going to be sort of that maker, not necessarily ambiguous, but sort of like that, mm, like, mix of these different personalities and personas to be able to make new things in the future.
2: You know, I wonder whether or not the new style atlases um, will also be tinged with this new pragmatic persona, mm-hmm. and so that um, they will be more oriented toward um, practical applications um, or at least toward toward prediction um, i'm I'm really struck by the way in which graphics in leading scientific journals like nature and Science are where i With going through doing a survey of them for the last five years or so um, have become extremely adept at combining um, many different kinds of data within a single image in order not so much to illuminate um, mechanisms but to make predictions and I think that in the era of big data that that tendency, which is um, not to neglect necessarily explanation, but to put a premium on the ability to use images to extract patterns, correlations, and therefore to point an arrow toward the future, whether that too is going to help shape a different scientific persona. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. That makes sense. I like that. Um, Yeah, the idea of using images to as predictive things rather than simply categorizing or providing mechanisms. It'll be an exciting, exciting thing to look forward to. So I guess like the the last question I have as per all new books network podcasts as a wrap up is like what can maybe readers expect from you next or what are you sort of working on or thinking about
2: um, now?
3: Rainy Well
2: um, I just finished a book on the history of rules. Um, all of them everywhere. Um, a similar kind of graveyard of scholars project, um, unfortunately, this time not with Peter, although I could certainly have used him, his help. Um, um, but it was an attempt to capture once again um, a fundamental form of thinking, perhaps the most fundamental form of thinking in human culture, and to give it uh, history. And the project that I've just started is um, one which, to my surprise, became timely which is um, the origins of international governance and science. So we, were, um, we are still in the midst of two global crises, climate change and the pandemic. And insofar as we have any kind of international governance capable of acting collectively at a global scale, it seems to be scientific. And I'm interested in how that came about. And I've been Sounds working so on,
3: on, on black holes. Uh, and in fact, some of the work that we did together has been useful in that respect, uh, making this image behind me uh, with the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration. And there, you, you know, one of the ways that, you know, I tried to gloss what we were doing in our collective discussions in the collaboration was that you have this image, which is a composite or average image over many images, and it, because you're averaging the images, it emphasizes the things they held in common and de-emphasizes the things that they didn't. Uh, so it forms a kind of idealization. And then once we got, uh, you know, the, there's also, a, when we began the process, we had different groups all working to use their best judgment from the data as to what kind of image they could produce. Uh, and when that was done, we... We, we began to do something much more mechanical and did a survey of all the different settings, so to speak, of the collective antenna that represented the combination of all these observatories around the world. So you saw these three different moments of judgment, then um, mechanical objectivity, then idealization. They just played backwards in some sense from the way historically it had come. And it's a good illustration of, of, of how these Resources produced over the last 300 years still are present at you know the edge of 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 things that we're doing, and then I I made a film along the way um, about the making of that image called the the edge of all we know, and my current project and continuing with that work with uh, the art historian Caroline Jones we're finishing a book called invisibility is seeing and unseeing the Anthropocene about how um, images. Are shaping or misshaping our our perception of the anthropocenic changes around us.
1: That sounds really cool too. Wow! So a lot lots to lots to look up and lots for people to keep on their event horizon, if you will. Um,
3: and Rainey and I are certainly always <laughs> looking for projects on which we could collaborate. So we hope to do another thing. I'm sure we'll do more together. I hope so. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, thanks again, Rainey and Peter, for coming on to the New Books Network podcast um, again. Um, The book that we've been talking about is Objectivity, distributed by the MIT Press. Big recommend for all you listeners to get it so you can check out the atlases alongside the text.
3: Thank you, Sarah.
2: Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for reading our book so so attentively. It was (laughs) a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Yeah, likewise. Thanks.